0: They saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. It was 1995, and I was 17 years old. It was Valentine's weekend, and my girlfriend invited me to go on this church retreat into the mountains of North Carolina. And on Valentine's Day, when you're a teenager and your girlfriend asks you to go somewhere on Valentine's weekend, you go. I was not from a churched family, and, but I, some of my other friends, my buddies, were going. I would kind of ran with the, uh, with the jock group at school. You know, I was an athlete, but not much of one, a mediocre one at best. So I had to try extra hard to kind of fit in and find my place and my sense of, of belonging in my high school. And so I was glad to go on this retreat. We had lots of fun. There was tons of games and activities. We're in the mountains in North Carolina. It was, it was lovely. But I remember on Saturday night, the, the speaker, he started talking about how God has accepted and welcomed you as his own through his son Jesus. And they showed a video about the crucifixion and how you no longer have to earn or try to strive to, for acceptance because you've already been embraced by God. And this message kind of hit home. And he sent us out and said, okay, you've got 20 minutes of quiet time out here on the campground somewhere here under the stars. Just take 20 minutes of silence and yeah, ask God if this is true or if this is for you, find a way to respond. So I went out and I remember laying on the side of this hill overlooking this lake the, the sky was as wide open as could be with the stars and the moon. The moon just seemed to be like hanging on a string, almost like it was being lowered down before my face. And I felt just this amazing sense of wonder that, wow, God loves me this much. Is this really true? And though I was kind of bundled up with my fleece, I, it was cold outside, and yet I felt this warmth <laughs> this sense of belonging the sense of home it was a true mountaintop experience and I got back on the bus and went back to Georgia back to my high school and was just thrilled with this new revelation to me that I'm loved and embraced by God through Christ Of course it wasn't but a week later that my girlfriend dumped me (laughs) and I'd failed to qualify for the state wrestling tournament in my weight division and I was hit with the loads of homework and the assignments and just the mundaneness of life. And that mountaintop experience started to feel like a very distant memory very quickly. Perhaps you've gone on vacation on a trip sometime and it was just an amazing experience with your loved ones and you just didn't want it to end and you got back from vacation and then went back to work or back to school and then the car breaks down and the dog gets sick and life just starts to happen, right? Maybe you've been to an amazing concert or perhaps you're still walking on cloud nine if you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan from last Sunday's Super Bowl But eventually, at some point, that mountaintop high, you kind of get brought back down to earth. We have here in our gospel reading a mountaintop experience of a supreme... himself bringing his friends up onto the mountaintop, revealing his glory in a unique and amazing way. His clothing begins to shine like it's been bleached extra white, a white you can't even find on earth. His face begins to glow. It's an amazing scene. Two saints from the Old Testament who should not be standing on that mountain with them appear out of nowhere. Moses, the giver of the law, the one who went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God and brought the law down on the stone tablets to the people of Israel. Moses, representing the law, And then Elijah, this amazing prophet of God in the Old Testament who kept telling the people to come back to the Lord, trust the Lord, don't trust yourself, don't make alliances with these bad kings. The Lord will save you. Elijah, the supreme prophet who actually didn't die but was caught up in a whirlwind and brought up into the heavens to God himself. Elijah and Moses, there on this mountain, the law of God, the prophet, the prophetic word of God, together appearing, showing that Jesus Christ is the culmination and the apex, the very nexus and fulfillment of what God has intended. This is the confirmed identity of God's Son being spoken by this voice out of a cloud. Imagine the incense that day, Richard Clark, huh? There's this enormous cloud around them and this voice booms from heaven. This is my son. Listen to him. It's an amazing scene. Heaven and earth seem to find its mesh point on that mountain that day of transfiguration. Jesus is transformed before them. And he alone, we need to know, was transformed. It wasn't the disciples next to him. Elijah and Moses, they... they, they paled in comparison to the gloriousness of Jesus on that mountain. The glow of his radiance reflecting the very glory of God. You see, when we behold Jesus, when we see Jesus for who he truly is, we, in fact, are being changed and transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, Paul writes. For God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament's promise to you and to me is that one day we shall become like him because we shall see him as he truly is. We walk by faith and not by sight now. See, because Jesus was transfigured on that mountain that day, you and I one day likewise will be transformed we will become full of glory and light in the new heavens and new earth there's good news for you in that Jesus promises in Matthew 13 that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father you have a destiny that outshines your present circumstances or your past failures and struggles there's something ahead of you that is so glorious and amazing that is waiting for you a true mountaintop experience but one that won't dissolve in your hands or become a distant memory. It will become an ever-present reality. There's good news for you. Do you have your eyes on Jesus today? Or are you captive to the circumstances of the moment? Or are you pining to get back to that one experience, that one place where you felt whole or felt right, or felt like all in the world was well? You see, it's important for us to see that this is a passage that's not by accident placed in our lectionary as the last Sunday of Epiphany. We're about to enter into Lent. Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. We a season of anticipation and preparation before Good Friday. And see, upon leaving this glorious summit, on the way down the mountain, Jesus tells the disciples, don't tell anyone. Do you imagine that? Have you ever been told a secret by somebody, something really important but that others should know, but they say, but don't, don't tell anyone else. They witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus, the voice saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone yet, not till I'm resurrected from the dead. I mean, that's like, kids, that's like you getting a bag of candy and then being told up, but you can't eat any of it now. Hold on to it all day, but don't touch it. Or that's like UCF fans being told after an undefeated season, after beating an SEC powerhouse in the Peach Bowl, shh, keep it quiet. Don't declare yourselves national champions. Just keep it to yourself. Don't party, don't celebrate. Can you imagine? Jesus is saying, don't tell anyone. Now, he's not telling us when we leave this place to keep this a secret, okay? He's not telling us to keep our mouths shut. I do think there's a reason why he told his disciples this during his earthly ministry, though. And I think it has something to do with the fact that for Jesus, glory and suffering are often very intertwined. They're not seen as completely separate. That's why the author of Hebrews can say that it was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he endured the cross. He scorned its shame. He took delight in dying for our sins. See, this transfiguration account is sandwiched in Mark between two things that are very important. One being Jesus saying, I'm going to die, and I want you to take up your cross and follow me. If you truly want to save your life, you need to be willing to lose it. And those who lose their lives for my sake will find it. He gives them that teaching Then they go up on this mountain, have this amazing experience where Peter's like, let's put up tents and stay here a while. Let's make this a whole party. But they have to leave that mount, don't they? And they leave and go down. And on the way down, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. And the first thing they encounter when they get down into the valley is a boy possessed by a demon whose dad is desperate for him to be healed. Right back into the mundane and the ordinary and the demon-possessed world. That Jesus came to love and to save. you see Jesus was on the move towards Jerusalem, towards the reason why he knew he had to come to die. His imminent death awaited him, and so in a sense, this text prepares you and I for Lent for a season where where the commingling of glory in the midst of suffering and pain happened to coincide. I see this a lot like in a movie scene. this is an old reference, but you remember the godfather there's that scene where the baby's being baptized in the church and all the mafia folks and their family are there and they're dressed really nice they look like good church people and the priest is sprinkling water over the baby's head and there's this really angelic kind of church music being played and then it cuts to a scene where the the, the Mafia Don has sent his henchmen out to kill his rival enemy and just gunning them down and shooting them to death. And then it switches back to the church where the baby's having words spoken over it and it just looks so innocent and pristine. And then back to the killing and the violence. This juxtaposition of both of those things being in frames right next to each other. That's what we have in this gospel story with Jesus on being elevated and exalted on the, on the mountaintop, and yet, he's about to walk right down into the midst of the demon-possessed. As much as you and I, we might desire to stand on the mountain with Jesus, pitch tents and stay there and make it a party, as much as we long to experience the life-giving power of his glory, the truth is, most of my life, it consists in the plodding along in the ordinariness of the valley. Oswald Chambers puts it like this in his great devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. The test of our spiritual life is our power to descend. If we have power to rise only, something is wrong. It is a great thing to be on the mount with God, but a man only gets there in order that afterwards he may go down among the devil-possessed and lift them up. The power to descend that's the real power of the Christian life. That's the power of Lent that we get taken into, where, where we recognize that we have a heavenly home that is not here. Lent is a season that makes no promise about our temporal life in the here and now, other than God's abiding and enduring presence with us, no matter what we face and whatever we go through. See, it's leaving the mountaintop to traverse the wilds of the valley where the struggle and futility and hardship reign that we are called to follow Jesus into those spaces, into those places. Because that's where the real people with real problems need someone who can relate to them, who can look at them and sit next to them and come alongside them and say, yeah, me too. But we have this hope. It's not always going to be like this. You have a destiny that will outshine even this hardship. See, you and I, we are to take the glory of Christ and descend into our ordinary worlds with our friends and our neighbors and trust that our very skin, our faces will shine with this glory that God gives us because we have a hope that can never perish or spoil or fade. It's something that can transcend our experiences and our circumstances. You know, after this service, we want to invite you to come out into the courtyard, out these uh, steps. And there's a tradition here at the cathedral where we take this really quaint, cool um, Alleluia banner. It says, Alleluia, you know, a a term of praise. and, And we bury it in our courtyard for the season of Lent, only to resurrect it and take it up again after Easter something that symbolizes in a visible way the co- how costly our salvation really is, and, and how truly difficult life is for your neighbor, for your friend, for your coworker, for the student in your class. To recognize that God has come and identified with us not just for the glories of the mountain, but down in the demon-possessed valleys where we spend a lot of our time. That's where our our invitation today from God perhaps is not to just crave and seek after these mountaintop experiences but to take with us the glories of Christ into the spaces we occupy in the valleys I don't know what yours looks like this week if it's in a classroom an office building your neighborhood at a party and on the schoolyard a front porch perhaps a coffee shop or the grocery store this is the amazing thing about the gospel is that Jesus Christ, he, he descends in order to lift up. He stoops down to conquer the very things that face and challenge us and threaten to overcome us. He lets go of his God-given heavenly right to comfort and ease in favor of slumming it with the unwashed and the unrighteous. He chooses to offer his very life on behalf of others. You see, this mountain of transfiguration, as glorious as it is, is, I think pales in comparison to the hilltop that he will ascend mere days later when he enters Jerusalem and is brutally beaten and killed on a wooden cross. N.T. Wright is helpful because he points out the contrast between this mountain of transfiguration and glory and that hilltop of shame. Here on this mountain, Jesus is revealed in glory, but there on that hillside outside of Jerusalem, Jesus is revealed in shame. Here, Jesus' clothes, they're shining and glimmering white in brightness. But there, his clothing is stripped off and gambled on by soldiers. Here, Jesus is flanked by Moses and Elijah on his right and left. There, he's sandwiched between common criminals. Here, a bright cloud overshines the scene. But there, darkness descends to cover the hilltop. Here, Peter blurts out glowing praise. Let's stay here. Pitch tense, Jesus. But there, when confronted, Peter blurts out, or cowers in shame and denial. Here, a voice from God proclaims this to be his son. And there on the cross, it's a pagan soldier who says, truly this was the son of God. This mountaintop helps explain that future mountaintop, that hilltop of Good Friday. You and I, we need reminders to look for the glory in the cross. And that's exactly what this passage helps open up for us as we enter Lent. Perhaps his glory is more displayed in Calvary than even at the Transfiguration Mount. And somehow, maybe the laughters and tears of a God who would hide in the cloud mingles together to show us the very kind of God that he really is because his glory is seen most in his descent. And that's the core mystery of following Christ, isn't it? Instead of finding shame, I find life in his death. Instead of finding condemnation, I find my weakness is where God is most at work and radiant. I find all those things that I perhaps am afraid of losing, they remind me that my inheritance is actually in the very kingdom of God, which he came to bring. May we look to him this season. Amen and amen.